You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is Danny Anderson, a very rusty Danny Anderson. I welcome you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. And I'm very happy to welcome uh, my good friend C. Derek Varn back to the show. I said 50 million Varn fans can't be wrong. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. How's everything going, Derek? It's going pretty good. Um, I'm hustling along and teaching and uh, working on literature. Uh, Varn blog, for those of you who want to check it out, is growing. We're covering a, a, an increasing number of topics, moving away from just politics. I've covered some novels. I've covered, done a show on music in a defense of new metal, which is weird, but it's, it's <laughs> happened. Um, and uh, I, it's interesting the, po- the the way this all works now. Pa- my Patreon's growing. My podcast downloads are good. Um, but my YouTube is tiny cause I don't monetize it. Um, cause I do not want to subject myself to the, uh, the whims of the political algorithm. Um, as far as other stuff has gone, uh, I've written a couple articles. I'm working on the long book of Christopher Lash, which is now, uh, doesn't have a publisher and my co-author is now finishing her dissertation. So we put it on. Hate us, but I've now made over 150 pages of notes, which is technically longer than the book is supposed to be. <laughs> so I don't think it's going to be a short book anymore. It's called editing, uh, my friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot. I I, I, I kind of am having an argument with the with like 50 percent of all known lash scholarship for being bad readers. Um, but. Uh, you know, and then I'm working on a third book of uh, a third collection of poetry. Um, second one is now in a second printing, actually, because we sold out of the first one and we we corrected some typos. <laughs> um, That's what a second so. printing's worth. That makes the first printing more valuable to collectors. Uh, yes, so, yeah. yeah. There's only apparently like 200 of them, so but <laughs> nice. they sold out in a month. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, anybody's listening. Go back and listen a couple episodes back. I talked to Derek about his most recent book of poetry. And then if you go back even further, I had him on to talk about Apocalyptics, his uh, his uh, previous book of poetry. And uh, I, that's one thing. I, I'm really happy. I know the Varn vlog is maybe less political than it used to be, but people think of Varn as a political pundit uh, from the left. And he is. But I also... I kind of like to have him on to talk about art and, uh, <laughs> and, and creative matters these days. Uh, there are plenty of shows where, where Derek's been on and we talked politics uh, and he always educates me on, educates me on those things. But um, as a poet, I think he's very interesting. And as a, you know, a film viewer, we have all those episodes we did on Tarkovsky movies. Uh, I just always get a lot out of his um, art criticism as well. And so 
certainly go into look at the Varn vlog if you look at the description uh, in this of this episode and wherever wherever you're listening to it. I'll put a link to the Varn vlog and uh, go ahead and listen to that. But today we want you to talk about Elvis Costello. Uh, I saw yeah. I saw Derek post something about loving El- early Elvis Costello on Twitter. And I said, my goodness, I love Elvis Costello. You should come talk about that with me on my show. And it just so happens, 1977, My Aim is True is released as his first album. That makes this the 45th anniversary year of, of yep. his career uh, as an album producing uh, artist. So it's kind of perfect timing um, accidentally. And so, uh, Derek, let's just get going about Elvis. It's, it's great. So uh, why don't you just begin? I don't even know where to begin this conversation. Oh, I mean... It- it's interesting to deal with Elvis Costello because when you have to deal with his father, who was a studio musician and an excellent one, um, but not one that was known for being particularly creative, and two, you have to deal with his personality, which has been abrasive and larger than life. Uh, and if you read his recent um, autobiography, he has a lot of negative things to say about himself from the time period that i actually like of his work yeah um and yet when i hear what he had to say about himself about from this time period that he was too aggressive he was too perfectionist uh that he would often just do things just to piss people off i mean you were talking about an artist who wrote who wrote three albums of obs- obsessing with the rise of uh, the return of fascism and stuff in Britain. I mean, that's a, that's a subcontext um, of it shows up on uh, on the British version of uh, less than zero. Uh, uh, yeah, and it's also on this year's model because mm-hmm. you got Night Rally. Um, and then it's and then uh, armed forces is explicitly comparing <laughs> the the up the rise and decline of a relationship to the rise and uh, to the rise and hopeful decline of fascism. Um, its original it, title was going to be emotional fascism. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then imperial bedroom, which still has a little bit of that on it. Um, but he's also a guy who went on a racist tirade in a bar <laughs> in Ohio. <laughs> Um, completely yes. drunk, um, saying how much how much high how much more high class the British were, and how American music was, which is hilarious because you know he didn't believe it. Like, I'm not saying we know that he was or wasn't racist. I mean, he he actually attributes um, the fight that happened because um, basically a, a female singer beat him up. Yeah. Um, to saving his life, mm. uh, although he did not, he did not own the apology for like twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is an interesting thing to see because his music is totally rooted, on one hand, in British pub rock, which is kind of the, their equivalent of garage rock. It, um, Look at Nick Lowe as another example of this, and you can hear. I mean, Nick Lowe worked with Elvis Costello on many, many songs. Um, But you also, his first album (laughs) is all totally influenced by 
50s R&B, rockabilly, early buddy Holly rock and roll is where he gets his look. His his backing band on My Aim is True is Clover, which for people who don't know, is the is the core of the people who become Huey Lewis in the news. And right. in fact, Huey Lewis was in the band, but did not appear in the album because he's a singer. Um, then he establishes the Attractions, which is his band um, for most of, the rest of his career. His current band is not the Attractions, but it's only because one or two members have left, and so they just renamed it. Yeah. It's still mostly the same people. Yeah, um, yeah. Steve Naive is the piano player. Uh, Pete Thomas is the drummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bruce Thomas was the bassist for the Attractions. An amazing bassist. I mean, it's one of the things that stand out about those early albums is the bass lines. It's almost a lead bass um, rather than a lead guitar. But Bruce Thomas didn't get along with either Pete Thomas or Elvis Costello and eventually was kicked out of the band. And so they basically replaced him. And, and uh, But uh, Pete and uh, and Steve are still uh, rocking away as of a couple of years ago when I saw him. So yeah, um, they're still. Last time I checked, he's touring with them now. Yeah. So I I forget what they're called now. Um, they were calling with, the Imposters. Uh, I don't yeah. know if that's still what they're. Yeah, but yeah, that's one um, of the many names. It's but it's more or less he's had at least two of the four musicians with him since the second album. Um. Wh- so he's an interesting fellow in that he is so resistant and difficult for American charts. And in fact, you know, after 1979, he basically almost completely is blacklisted here yeah. um, for that rant. And then, uh, interestingly enough, I remember them reading stuff about him playing rock against racism and people protesting him for racism. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And uh, which to be fair, I mean, what he said was pretty inflammatory. Yes. He used Uh the N word with relation to Ray Charles. I do believe relates Charles and to Otis Redding, which, you know, I'm a making boy. Those are fighting words. I also would have slapped it. Yeah. But you do. I mean, obviously I wasn't there or anything, but, Based on the story and based on his apologies, it does seem fueled by alcohol and just sort of a way to get back at Stephen Stills's band. <laughs> he was having a, a fight with Stephen Stills's band in a bar in a bar somewhere, and he was just trying to say something to rile people up. Um, but you don't say something like that without consequence, and so I'm, I'm right. not. Uh, yeah, I'm not suggesting. Um, well, I mean, yeah. White Charles forgave him because he said he was drunk. And then, but what, what I find interesting is he's never contested uh, Bromley's um, account of what happened, which is basically he said it, she slapped him, he tried to hit her back, and then uh, and then uh, the bartender broke the fight up. Um, and that... That seems to have been a, cha- a key changing moment in his career, yeah, in a lot of ways, because that's when he fell out in America. Um, another thing about him is despite we talk about all of his music being so influenced by the U.S., his lyrical content until King of America, which we'll get to, is so incredibly British, yeah, that like it's <laughs> it, it is very hard, um. I think for some contemporary, I think it's easier now for us to understand some of his music in hindsight. Um, 
because the the internet and British and American culture are probably actually closer now. Yeah. Well, um, I can say I wrote a paper about when I was in college. Like I think it was Man Out of Time. It was in um, Imperial Bedroom. And I literally had to look. It was almost like reading a work in translation. Um, the references um, don't register to an American listener. I had to look up what French letters were, um, which is condoms. It, it was, and so there were like so many things in the song. I did not even understand the reference until, and this was before the days of uh, like whatever Urban Dictionary or whatever all these internet mm-hmm. tools that interpret music for you. So it was, it was almost like reading a work in translation. The, the cultural dis- difference was so distinct. I mean, and the other thing that creates is that if you bought his albums on LPs in the seventies and eighties. The British versions of the albums and the American versions of the albums are often very, very different. Yeah. Um, like this year's model is missing three songs in the American version uh, and has one song, uh, I mean, a famous song, a kind of infamous song, Radio Radio, in the US version that is not right. on the British version. I think when you buy it now, you get all of them plus the additional. I think you can't, I think the versions that I found. Now that are available now, plus Spotify makes this kind of irrelevant, but yeah. uh, has all the songs on it. But yeah. for a long time, um, because of his um, his American record labels, often thought some of his songs were too esoteric yeah. for the American audience. That uh, there's a big difference between the UK and US versions of the album. Mm-hmm. I think that's also true on on Armed Forces. Which is you want to talk about an album that is opaque to Americans? Like it took even like as much as I know about Britain and even British fascism specifically. Like, I it took me forever to realize what all the references were in Green Shirt. Right. Because yeah. I'm like, <laughs> exactly. Like, are we talking about a woman? Are we talking about fascist? <laughs> Apparently, it's both. And like, yeah. yeah. Um, well, let me um, like hone in on that. Like, less than zero, for example, has an American mm-hmm. version. Um, which is vaguely about the JFK assassination because it mentions Oswald and to Americans, that's what we think of. The British version is about Oswald Mosley, uh, the, the, the famous and infamous British fascist, you know, leader and and a resurgence of, of his, uh, his project at that time in Britain. So there's like a two completely version, different versions of that song for those different markets based on that one name and what, how they would resonate. Yeah. He wrote the American version because his producers told him that the U S people would think it was, uh, (laughs) it was, um, Oswald, the SS. So he rewrote it to make it about that, which it's absolutely not. It doesn't, the American version doesn't entirely work. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Exactly. Cause it's like (laughs) 1978 or something, right? It doesn't, um, well, um, going back, really, before we move on, like his persona, I think is is worth spending a little bit of time on. Um, I remember there's a famous music critic from Cleveland. She was famous in Cleveland. I don't know if anybody outside of Cleveland knew her. Jane Scott uh, was mm-hmm. her name, and and she, I remember in her elder her older days. I mean, she was almost gone by that point. Was recalling someone asked her a question on a radio show I was listening to if she had ever met any musicians she didn't like uh and she said the, the only name she could produce was Elvis Costello <laughs> like it's the only one she would should talk about he asked her three times and, and that's the only name so there was something i think about the moment that he became famous that 
encouraged sort of angry young man kind of bad boy hate the press persona and and i i feel on some level this is what he's apologizing for he knows he was wrapped up in this like fake identity almost um and he feels bad about that. He would say terrible things about Linda Ronstadt for covering, um, I think it was Allison, uh, or right. something. And, um, but then later on, he feels terrible about saying the things. He was almost like living down to an expectation. And some of that came from his manager, a guy named Jake Riviera, who mm-hmm. was, I, I, I mean, <laughs> in that era of, of, the British punk scene, this is like what they called new wave at the time, uh, sort of a, a more poppy offshoot of, of the British punk scene. Um, he came up with stiff records and they kind of made their, that there was a marketing ploy with this like snotty brash vulgar yeah. kind of uh, presentation, but not the same kind of presentation that like, even though for example, radio radio is actually ran in defense of the sex pistols. Um, he does not have that image, which in a way I think hurts him. Because um, we know not to take Johnny Lydon and all that seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, you know, for example, um, Sid Vicious would wear swastikas on stage, even though everyone knew he was not a Nazi. He was just an idiot troll. Right. Um, <laughs> a drunken idiot troll. Right. A very dangerous drunken idiot troll, turns out. But not, <laughs> nonetheless, um, whereas... Elvis Costello affecting, I mean, like, the fact that he comes out in Buddy Holly style, the fact that he's deliberately picking up so much influence from, in his presentation from the U.S. 1950s, I think throws people off. I also think it hurt the reception of, like, this year's model, for example, which is a response song, apparently, to... uh, to a Rolling Stone song. Mm. Um, uh, and I think the Rolling Stones song is truly misogynistic. Where I think and th- there is some, miso- there is a little bit, there are some songs on that album that I, I do see where they get, the, where the accusation of misogyny comes from. Uh, particularly the first one, uh, like No Action and, yeah. and stuff like that. But when I listen to, 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 uh, What's the specific song? Um, do, 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 gotta think about it. <laughs> um, because this year's model is actually not the song title. It's a line in the song. Um, when I think about... Uh, this year's girl, right? Is that the... This year's girl is what it is. Yeah. He's actually sympathetic Yeah. to to the woman in that song. Yeah. Um, when you actually li- read the lyrics, you're like, oh, he's spitting it out, and it seems contemptuous, but the, the lyrics are sympathetic to the woman. Yeah. Um, and I think, his, I think that his attitude and his persona really, really hurt people actually listening to what he said. And like we talked about after the 79 incident, this only got way, way worse. Um, but yeah, he has he has a reputation for being an absolute jerk. Yeah, until the nineties. Yeah. Um, um, and it sounds like it was earned, honestly. Like <laughs> it does. <laughs> um, I, I have to say, you know, I've met several of my my 
artistic heroes in my life, I would never want to meet Elvis Costello, <laughs> I have to say. Billy Bragg was a lovely person. I met Billy Bragg. I got my picture with him. He was a beautiful man. Um, but I would never want to meet Elvis Costello even today. <laughs> it's interesting because there are so many. Uh, this is something I notice when I deal with poets, too. Um intermediate level artists, intermediate level podcasters, intermediate level poets, intermediate level musicians tend to be insecure in ways that make them mm. um, intensely unpleasant and intensely careers. Yeah, yeah. Where, like, whereas when I was a nobody and just sent an email of Jonathan Leatham, he gave me an interview. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like or um, when I met Peter Steele as a kid, he was super nice to me. Yeah, like, because yeah. they'd already made it, so it was a different. Um, it's. It, I do think there is something to that period of your career. Yeah. Um, that if you're not careful, and it seems like he stayed in that mode for a long time. Yeah. Um, he doesn't seem to have been as much of a. It's like it's like, of the people I'm told are jerks. Elvis Costello doesn't surprise me. But then I think about someone like Lou Reed, and I'm like, he doesn't seem as bad as Lou Reed, yeah. like at all. Like people could stay in a band with him. Um, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, uh, Pete Thomas still likes him, I guess, right? <laughs> right. Like somebody still likes him. Um, well, and like you said, he has, I think, um, made. He's had. He's been on an apology tour. There was. I remember actually an episode. Apology tour for like three decades. Yeah, yeah. In the '90s, uh, there was a VH1 storytellers that he did, and and he was sort of clearly on the apology tour then and he was talking how terrible he treated Linda Ronstadt and stuff yeah so yeah he's had a, a long enough career post that period of his life that yeah it's kind of somewhat uh eclipsed uh at least on a personal level although I don't know that the quality of his work has eclipsed that uh which is an interesting <laughs> well I mean this this is a problem because you and I were talking about this uh I, and actually, I can't really tell you what's not interesting about his post-90s work. Um, he's done some stuff with orchestras. He's been experimental. He's been – like, one of the things that he's been – is something he never was in his early periods. He's been very generous about, like, letting other groups cover his music. I think recently there was um, – uh, I think uh, – this year's model and another thing I think it was called Mexican radio was released. Yeah. And it's like, he's all working entirely Spanish, Spanish covers bands yeah. and, and Spanish language covers, which he contributes yeah, yeah. Um, to, and really trying to get that out to an English speaking audience. Um, he's tried to work with a lot of other people and, and make his career. So it's an interesting, um, I think, yeah, Spanish motel is what it's called. Uh, yeah. Spanish model. And, um, he's done a lot of that in, in his last, like last 20 years. Um, did an album with the it, roots, um, yeah. of his kind of a weird remix of a lot of his old music with new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that was actually when he, the first time I think before his book, his autobiography came out where he actually apologized as opposed to in the eighties where he semi apologized for yeah. what happened in 79. Um, it's, it seems like a good bit of his career is him apologizing for the way he acted in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and there's two, even at the time, like, so I noted that, he, you know, he said that specifically what he said about Ray Charles, well, what two albums does he release um, in the early eighties after the 79 incident? And 
it's uh let's see let me look at my stuff here make sure i got time all right uh tr uh trust and almost blue yeah uh trust is pretty much a country record which that doesn't seem like it's an apology to ray charles except that if you know ray charles's history yeah ray charles got his white audience from new sounds of country music which is where he did jazz uh variants of country music yeah um, that actually is a good way to describe trust. It's almost like country in a nightclub, um, and and that, that's right. what that sounds like. Now, almost blue are country covers. Uh, that that right. is, yeah, and that came out right around the same time as well. Which I think I think those two albums are explicitly aimed at saying, "Look, I get it. I'm sorry." He also was so embarrassed by what he said he couldn't meet Ray Charles, and Ray Charles offered to meet him to forgive him in person. And yeah. He wouldn't do it. Oh, interesting. Um, um. Uh, he said he was just too ashamed about what he said. Yeah. Um, so I find that interesting. I also find, you know, he's he's a uh, he's he's critically loved and critically resented. Yeah. Too. I think that's I think that's another thing about him is, you know, that everyone always talks about you. Know, what's that famous quote about him? The, the reason why the rock critics liked him is he looked like them. <laughs> Um, <laughs> in a lot right. of ways, it's it mirrors film critics' uh, love of Woody Allen. I mean, and there's a lot of similarities. I think, uh, the, the, I think, yeah, for a lot of I think a lot of reasons. Yeah, although their later life in some ways would be the opposite. No, true. Yeah, uh, Woody Allen had the, the negative turn. Woody Allen yeah. was like never <laughs> ever apologized for anything, and like he just doubles down on it. Right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Whereas Elvis Costello is like, yeah, I was a jerk, yeah. Um, yeah. and you know he still may be a jerk, but at least he's aware of it now. And uh, also, he's he his relationship problems are kind of infamous. But none of them involved taking advantage of children. Um, <laughs> and he's been with Diana Krall for a, a couple, a long time Almost now. 20 years. Yeah. Now. They've been married seemingly successfully for a long time. Um, his first marriage, um, where his first son comes from, ended as he got famous. Like it, it was, it seems to be destroyed by his first two albums. And then he dated a lot of models. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, and the girl from the Pogues. Uh, yeah, in the mid '80s, he did the girl from the Pogues, which, which you know, Kate Kate O'Riordan, I think her name was. Yeah, yeah. Um, because he he produced Rum Sodom and Lash. That's the other thing about Costello. Yeah, is he's apparently an amazing producer. Uh, again, kind of like Nick Lowe. Yeah. Nick Lowe has been to him. Yeah, um, the specials. I love the the specials first album. Um, he produced that and some Squeeze albums and and uh, yeah, he he was very um, very very uh, influential. I think in in a lot of the I think some Madness album. He yeah he he was very very important. Yeah, he's up there to me with John Cale and Brian Eno as far as like people from Britain that you wanted to produce your record in the seventies and eighties, yeah. like who were also musicians yeah. and. Um, and yes, I think you're right. He he produced the best specials album. He produced the only Pogue album anyone remembers. Yeah. Um, he produced, <laughs> you know, um, you know, he's his sound. Also, when I think about his guitar tone and whatnot, I hear all the influences, and yet there's not many people who can who can uh, move between kind of Americana pub rock 
which is a contradiction in terms anyway. Right, right. Because um, like pub rock is very British. It's very it, it's very British. It is a parallel to New York punk and garage rock, but it is a very British phenomenon. There's no equivalent to it here. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. it's almost and, like the bar band kind of like like a local bar band from Pittsburgh. I mean, that's kind of like the closest. Yeah, that's thing. what it's supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, and so I guess like. The equivalent in American music that has a similar relationship to punk would be like the aughts version of garage, like new garage rock from like the early 2000s, like uh, the Strokes and the White Stripes and all that. That's the equivalent. Yeah. Um, And I guess we also had something like that in the 70s, except that it was more removed from punk rock. Yeah. uh, You know, that actually... uh, one of the things I appreciate about Elvis Costello's career is as a gateway to a, a world I would have never discovered if I hadn't been a fan of his. And honestly, I can't remember how I discovered him. I think it must have been through Veronica being on VH1 when I was in high school. And uh, and I think I discovered him then and then went backwards from there. Um, that was on the album Spike. But nonetheless, once I did really get into him, I went into like the Stiff Records uh, catalog and I became a huge mm-hmm. fan of Reckless Eric. Uh, Nick Lowe is a big favorite of mine. And all those, um, like Ian Dury and the Blockheads, I, I became a huge right. Ian Dury fan. Very weird and idiosyncratic, though, to an American uh, ear, right? It just the doesn't thing is, sound like, like none any... of those. None of those people. Costello is literally the only pub rock icon that did well in America, with the exception of one Nick Loso. Yeah, yeah. Cruel to be like, kind. <laughs> yeah. Which, I, honestly, the Costello version is also better. Yeah. But, but, I mean, it's interesting because um, when you hear when you hear the work that that Costello does with Nick Lowe, because Nick Lowe, like Costello wrote most of his own music, but Nick Lowe wrote quite a few of his songs. True. Um, he brings a venom yeah. to that that Nick Lowe doesn't have, even though the lyrics justify it. It's very interesting. Yeah, Nick Lowe is like he just seems like the nicest man in the world. <laughs> Yeah. He just seems like he just, I mean, yeah, he's a if great. He did work with Elvis Costello. He has to be pretty forgiving. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting what comes out of it. I also think around 1983, you start seeing him experimenting with all kinds of stuff. Like he works with Robert Wyatt of, uh, who I guess is most known in the U S for a soft machine, but I kind of know him for his like solo mm. weird Baroque pop stuff. And that's another thing. That's another British musical tradition that we never got in America. Like right. the Baroque pop movement never came here. Right. Um, except for through Brits like John Cale or um, our soft machine when they were big or yeah. something like that. Um, mm. But the other thing that's interesting about Costello is he borderlines new wave and yeah. new wave is more of an American uh, music genre, even though it was also big in Britain. Yeah. Um, yeah. I never, so gosh, when Nirvana hit and they invented the alternative radio format um, to, because there was no place to play Nirvana. <laughs> and then they had the sort of the nineties that, that yeah, we invented an entire job, two entire genres that don't actually have any defining characteristics at all. Yes. Both and alternative, which what is it? Yeah. It just not, it's just not arena rock. That's all we really. 
yeah. except for Pearl Jam and yeah, <laughs> and Soundgarden. But, but <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but at that moment, I mean, that was really the first time I started hearing Elvis Costello on the radio uh, because they would go back and replay that. That now there was a place to play "Pump It Up," um, and it made mm-hmm. sense among that in that format. So in the '90s, you do get this sort of like. He had a revival. Yeah, it was a bit of a revival, actually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, 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 the interesting thing is, and I think we have to go back to the difference between 60s and early 70s into the mid 70s radio, FM radio. I mean, FM radio was wild enough that Pink Floyd, for example, had a no singles policy and you still heard them all over the radio. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The 80s is when all this shores up. What what hurts Costello is he's a bu- he's involved in a bunch of musical movements that I think did wear touring, but did not get a lot of. They never came close to top forty. No. Um, it's actually interesting now when I like go back and listen. Like if you listen to eighties radio now, there's so much new wave on it, and I guess there was a lot of new wave on on at the time. But as a kid. I never heard that stuff on the radio. It was all like Lionel Richie yeah. and um, uh, all all the what we would now call yacht rock. Yeah. Um, although that wasn't called that then. You know, yacht rock's really a term from the aughts. Yeah, yeah. But um, all that you know, Steely Dan, uh, all that stuff that you heard that a lot, and you heard a lot of like the beginnings. Uh, I mean, you, you heard a lot of oldies and Motown and. But Costello didn't doesn't didn't really fit into a lot of the of the formats of of the eighties as far as like when radio started genre formatting in a strong way. And that doesn't really start and get and get really pinned down until the until the nineteen eighties when the billboard charts get really specific in what they're ranking. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, the Billboard charts have genres that are mentioned, like, uh, like Latin freestyle, for example, that like we don't even remember as genres, but they were a thing. They were like a, they were like a whole um, genre thing in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, the problem that you have with someone like Costello is that pop rock is never that popular in the United States. New wave is. It's popular enough, but it doesn't really. None of the new wave stuff actually really fits radio formats that easily, unless they go and make it really big, like Tears for Fears, sure, or something like that. Or Frankie Goes Hollywood. Like, mm. there's new. A lot of the new wave bands have extensive careers, but you know them for a song. Yeah. Um, um, and yeah, and that doesn't really happen with Costello. He never has one song that's big enough. Um, and. I think part of that is his blacklisted his blacklistedness in the early '80s plays into this. Um, part of that is how British his stuff is, and then part of that is like he's not. Even though I can say I know what an Elvis Costello so- album sounds like, and it sounds like a little bit of Americana, a little bit of pop rock, a little bit of new wave. Uh, it get, Latin, as you gets older, you get more Latin beats, you get acoustic guitars. Um, I can't think of anything like it. And the, the reason why Alternative busts it open is Alternative Radio doesn't really have a format. Yeah. Like, 
I mean, that's the interesting thing about alternative and grunge is I've been for like 30 years trying to figure out what they actually were. Are indie now? We don't re- like it's like it's just stuff that's pop adjacent that isn't heavy metal and isn't easy listening. Yeah. And then a lot of the other like a lot of the other formats have gone away. Like there is no like there is no is easy listening format anymore. Right. Like that's well, gone. They've created this Americana that like covers a lot of that same terror. It's like I don't exactly know what Jason Isbell is, right? Uh, other than Americana cuz he's not quite country in what in terms of what gets played on country Americana, radio. <laughs> but I think that actually comes from the fact that country really splits in the 90s. Yeah, but lots of bands like St. Paul and the Broken Bones will get thrown as uh, Americana. Yeah. doesn't sound well, anything like it. All American folk music that's contemporary gets thrown in Americana right. too. Right, and it's just like a, a lot of like traditional blues. It's a leftover bucket, right? Um, and, and so, yeah, and I think it's in some ways the new, the new version of alternative radio uh, They don't where they don't know how to market something and they don't want to call it dad rock. Um, <laughs> they, they, uh, they, throw, they call it Americana. And right. I think I a lot think- of uh, Costello stuff, actually, like the delivery man from the early 2000s would totally be an americana album now except that he's british and that complicates i mean that's the thing about these musical categories although i mean i've seen him listed as being like particularly the first album because clover the band is so yeah yeah i mean uh, uh it's so they were basically a bar uh, a standing bar backing band for a while they also i think what a couple of members went and joined the uh were founded members of the doobie brothers too so, I, I mean think like, that's right yeah so it's uh it's interesting how much how important they ended up being um but yeah i think with with elvis costello he kind of he fits in a senior songwriter box that is recognizable in the 70s but not recognizable in the 80s and barely recognizable in the 90s but at least there's now some place to put that that particularly the early stuff because it's more power pop more uh more pub rock which is at least related and new wave which is because new wave is the predecessor to alternative and in, yeah. in so much that it's a bunch of pop musicians who learned how to play their instruments and are influenced by country reggae scott when I say ska, I do not mean the specials. I mean like tro- uh, Trojan Records in Jamaica. Right, right. right. Um, and uh, Motown. Right. And, you know, you hear that in like the Talking Heads. And another band that, yes, they, they, they got top 40 radio play, actually. But where do you put the Talking Heads on most radio formats until the 90s when you put them on alternative radio? Yeah. Like. Yeah, no, um, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, the, at least the Talking Heads had music videos. Like Elvis Costello's videos are generally pretty bad. <laughs> like, um, and, and they they kind of predate MTV for most of them. But if you look at the videos for like Pump It Up, and stuff, they're almost like embarrassing, right? Um, but um, well, it's actually interesting that he didn't do videos because I, I think about it, think about his contemporaries. Right? Who else is coming around on the American side of things that? I know people would never think about him as a contemporary because he sounds so different, but Bruce Springsteen yeah, is a was, parallel career to Elvis Costello. Yeah. He just started a, and, couple, a few years earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really doesn't hit until 85 in the U.S. Yeah. Um, on an album that I'm going to be blasphemous and say 
is not his best one. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone would argue with that. <laughs> his best one's Nebraska, but that's not, <laughs> I, that's not a, that's not an easy sell to like radio. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's where they have um, Americana. That's where Nebraska goes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Nebraska goes into the Americana. You are correct, sir. Um, but it's a similar thing. What Elvis Costello does is, despite how image conscious he is. Oh, I should also mention he was not just blacklisted for the '79 incident. He was also blacklisted for personally pissing off Lauren Michaels. Right. Uh, the Saturday Night Live um, famous. Uh, yes. When he plays Radio Radio, um, which is about censorship, and then uh, you get censored. Which I, 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 what I don't understand is why. I have listened to that song a thousand times and I'm not figured out other than the fact he's insulting the BBC. Why that song is so controversial. Cause I'm I, like, yeah, well I honestly, yeah, I think it was just because Lauren Michaels told him not to do it and he did it. I think it was just sort of a personal insult. <laughs> and, but then, you know, there's the famous moment where, uh, it's at 94 when the beastie boys are going to do sabotage and he runs out on the stage for Saturday night live and, and, and stops they them radio. and they do radio radio <laughs> and they, and the beastie boys are the backup band. Um, uh, so that's sort of his, you know, part of his comeback tour. It was part of his redemption tour. Definitely. Yeah. Um, right. Was, authorized uh, by Norn Michaels. Michael. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but I mean, it is interesting because he, during the eighties, he just, when he's releasing some of his best work yeah, is when he is not, got u.s media access that have it now he's still the thing is he's like constantly topping the charts in the uk yeah i mean oliver's army which is a song that like um i don't they can't play anymore because he he's actually asking to take it off because it has the uh he's quoting um british officers talking about the irish and they and yeah yeah they call him white inward yeah and it's in the song and he actually said when they started bleeping it, it made it more obvious. So he's just like, just don't play the song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he was like, I wouldn't use that now. But it was historically what they said. Sure. And um, he wasn't like condoning the use of the term. He was, yeah. No, he, it was it was actually explicitly yeah. negative. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's also, I, I was reading something about some fans that were like, man, there's some Randy Newman albums you guys just forget exist then. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, uh, yeah, well, that's a whole nother show. We can talk about. Um, <laughs> we can talk about that kind of issue, right? But yeah, uh, but, but I, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, you're talking about the '80s. You're right. You know, I, I, the first three album, the first two albums especially, are the most like kind of straightforward rock and roll. Uh, oriented albums especially this year's model um armed forces gets very elaborate with lots more orchestration um but it's really it's not it's all baroque yeah yeah <laughs> and then it gets very experimental in the period of like punch the clock and imperial bedroom right. and all that kind of thing um and and he brings in uh, was it jeff emmerich to do a lot of the the mixing and all that and it's very um elaborate and, and artistic right and so I don't know that he has a career if it isn't for like journal music journalists like Rolling Stone and probably alternative like Spin and Trouser Press yeah. and those places, right? They appreciate that kind of uh, I don't thing. know if he has a career in America anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. Um, and so there's something about he's like a, a, a media or a, a music critic darling, right? That, that, and he's almost, that's almost who he's making the records for in, in those times. Yeah. One of the things about him, 
his lyrics are idiosyncratic, but they're good. Yeah. Um, like one of the things about even like this year's model is those scream ballads do not seem like they're very deep. And then you slow the song down and you read the lyrics and you're like, Oh, this is actually about something pretty substantive. Yeah. Um, on, on armed forces and into Imperial bedroom, it gets like, like I mentioned off air, the song green shirt where it's like, the, there's multi layers of reference, and then there's also multiple layers of musicality. But because the backbeat's so pushing, you often don't notice how many layers there are. Um, and unlike, say, I, I'm gonna bring up Yacht Rock again, but something like Steely Dan or the Doobie Brothers, where you know to it's smooth, but you know you have to listen to the various layers of it to really get it. Um, Costello doesn't seem that way at first and and i think that's why music critics love him but it until the 90s it really doesn't translate to anybody else no, loving it it's in america like, you're right yeah right i mean he's 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 doing well in the charts in the uk i mean like armed forces i think has a number two in the uk but like in america no one i think hardly anybody hears that album right imperial bedroom which is like i think probably my Piero Bedroom or King of America. I don't know if I like him more Baroque or more stripped down, depending on. But those are like my two favorites. And I, you know, every if you go back and look at Rolling Stone, everybody's writing glowingly about him, but like you can't find him on a chart at all. Right. Um. Yeah. So yeah, he's uh he's I'm trying to think of someone like him now. Uh, maybe oh. like John Darnell, the Mountain Goats, is one like somebody where all the critics love his albums and. He's got diehard fans, but like he's never really uh, had radio play. I, I almost feel like the entire music industry is like him now. Like it, it, there's there yeah. is no, you know what I mean? There is no. I mean, it's all targeted Except demographic. For off. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I feel like so much of the music industry is him now, uh, or uh, like he predicted this kind of very kind of niche niche um like demographic uh targeting and and yeah and it which i mean i want to like think about that like what it is about that that spoke to me so much as a young man i, I just was real i mean i wear glasses and i never even thought about how much i'm sure i chose these glasses <laughs> because of liking Elvis Costello. i mean i don't, I don't yeah, not you it wasn't buddy holly that got you the thick room glasses yeah and it wasn't <laughs> i mean i don't know that i i consciously thought of it but but it was definitely i mean something about his music uh really affected me in a very deep way when i was in my very early in late teens and early 20s and, and so i don't know what that was but um and, i did not listen to him in my teens um and it was one of those things when, okay, so my writing career, uh, barring the fact that all my rough drafts are awful because I'm a phasic, <laughs> um, actually begins with me doing zines. And what that led me to when I was in college as a side, one of my many side gigs was uh, doing music reviews because I could get in the concerts and get CDs for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in educating myself about pop music because i understood how music worked but i i needed to learn the history of like pop music what were the revered people it led me to leonard cohen it led me to Ava costello it led me to um uh robert wyatt it led me to tom waits yeah tom waits <laughs> it led me to all these people who 
are more readily heard now and are also they're almost like a they're almost like a tell of an overly educated kind of you know that they are to music what david foster wallace was 10 years ago to literature yeah um but that is how i discovered it was mm -hmm. like okay what do what do critics listen to you yeah and um at first on first listening to my aim is true i was like this is some British dude doing Americana. I don't care. Like it was, it was listening to this year's model. I think when I was 22 years old and going like, and I, I think I had the British version of the album. Cause I hit, I hit night rally, which is not on the American version. And like, I was like, Oh, well, this album's actually about something. Like, yeah. and I wasn't quite sure what, um, but you know, at first it just seems like, you know, a bitter dude ranting about his breakups, but it's not that really at all, or it is that, but it's also not. Um, and I got really into his music, but I also think one of the reasons why I didn't listen to it in high school is I associated him with stodgy rock critics. Mm. And it was like somebody like Bruce Springsteen, which you are like legally required to like, and like you know, are the Beatles, for example? Like I spent most of my teens and twenties absolutely hating the Beatles, just out of like contrary spite. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and I still don't like uh, John Lennon very much. <laughs> but uh, um, it's it was that that ad, that record. I, sometimes I wonder if that hurt him, um, because he he doesn't. Like a lot of times when you listen to critical darlings like him, I think of somebody like else like Peter Gabriel. Yeah. Somebody, like they seem like work. Mm -hmm. Like it, you don't think you're going to get a power pop album. Like, <laughs> and, and in the eighties you weren't, but right. like the first two albums are perfectly accessible. I think the first one's actually maybe too accessible for you to really get what's going on. But like, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I find he's one he's one of my favorite people though because uh, musicians because there is both a complexity and and a seeming simplicity to everything he does. His complexity doesn't announce itself upon first listen. Yeah, I so I had a friend when I lived in New York who's a musician and one of our first conversations where we bonded, we worked together and I said, what do you listen to? And he said, Elvis Costello is my favorite. And I went, oh, I love Elvis Costello. And he said, yeah, I kind of think of him as a musician's musician, somebody who's sort of doing something at another level that other musicians can like admire. And he pointed out to me, and I've subsequently found this out myself. I, you know, have a guitar and I would strum along with songs. Virtually impossible to do with an Elvis Costello song. He uses so many intricate, in, in illogical key changes you don't like you don't do uh you know cge with an elvis costello song there's all bizarre chords that he creates and in and he skips keys in a way that most pop music does not do but he does it in such a way that it works with the melody it's actually an incredibly complex um composition right. Even that's at the what's beginning. so amazing about him because if you actually try to sit down and play him you're like you look at the sheet music and you think it's prog rock. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it isn't. Like it is, you know, you're you're like, "Wait, I didn't notice that there's a there, there's a weird chord change here or 
Um, to a chord I've never they, seen before. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or there's a or there's a time signature change that sounds awfully close to four four, but isn't. Yeah. Um, and, and there's stuff like that. I mean, like whereas you know, with someone like I don't know, pre Phil Collins Genesis, you know what you're getting into. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, you know, or Porcupine Tree or something like that. Like, um. And I can't think of a lot of other people. I'm trying to think of who's equivalent who is like that complicated, but you don't hear it on first listen. Um, I, yeah, it, I can't it, think of any. I can't either. It, it is uh, an incredibly like unique sound. And I guess this is one thing that always kind of puzzled me. I, I, one of the many things in my life that have always made me feel like an isolated, alienated loner that nobody can <laughs> The things I like, nobody else I knew liked, right? And so uh-huh. Elvis Costello is another example of this. And I listened to his music, and 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 I, I know that nobody else is listening to this, but then I listened to, like, David Bowie. His lyrics don't make any sense either, but they're huge pop hits, right? And so I don't understand what it is. It's not the lyrics that are alienating to a broad audience. There's something else about what he does. But I that, think it's, like, actually – Costello lyrics make more sense than David Bowie lyrics, honestly. Maybe like, that's it, I guess. But yeah, but you know what I'm saying. It isn't like just not that they're not straightforward boy meets girl no, I mean, lyrics, right? There are other bands that have made it big. Pink Floyd's another example you mentioned yeah, before, right? Yeah, both Pink right? Floyd and and Bowie, and to maybe even to some degree, Iggy Pop, um, yeah, uh, and the American person uh, of who uh, Costello actually had relations with uh, um, Lou Reed, another one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, where I'm like, how did they get away with this? Yeah. On on but but Costello, who is seemingly more approachable, is somehow more alien to people <laughs> yes. at the same time. Like, and I don't know if it's the image, like the glasses and the the snotty habit attitude, and uh, he's not sexy, or I don't know what it is. But yeah, there's, there's something. There was something that I just never understood. Arcane. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, like, um, interestingly, as much as we were talking about like, like post nineties Costello as being kind of boring, uh, I don't have a period of of Costello that's like early nineties Bowie, which is just bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, like we, everyone forgets Tim Machine happened. We just don't mention it. <laughs> I had Tin Machine's Why? album. <laughs> I tried like heck to really listen to that, and I had it. And, and, and actually, there were there was parts of it I liked, but no, there's like two good songs on the Tin Machine album, but we just pretend that it didn't happen. I understand. Uh, what you're it was like David Bowie was in a rock band that was, yeah, he was. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that's. I think it's his image plus the sound is alienating because he looks like Roy Orbison or somebody in yeah. the American context. Like, yeah. you'd expect him to be playing either Buddy Holly tribute stuff or surf rock. Yeah. Um, and neither of which he's doing. Yeah. Um, well, and added to that, the, there's a paradox here because he's also, I guess maybe it goes back to the thing about being a musician's musician. He's hugely influential. I mean, I don't think you get like 
like some more minor group like Donny Iris. Uh, you don't get somebody like that. You probably don't get Marshall Crenshaw. Um, you certainly don't get someone like John Wesley Harding, who's one of my favorites, actually, and um, goes by the name Wesley Stace now, his original name. Uh, but um, but there's, there's a, a, a huge number of later musicians who are clearly taking their cues from Elvis Costello. And, and so in the same way that he's alienating to listeners, he's actually producing like uh, people who are trying to follow in his footsteps. I can't think of like the only other equivalent to him is the Velvet Underground. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Oh Cale, yeah. That's, yeah. Which is a very different uh, feel. I mean, particularly John Cale, like, um, Paris 1918 is like an album that I can't think of anything more unlike Elvis Costello, but it is similar in that um, musicians love it. Poets and writers love it. Um, And Elvis Costello, if you know less than zero, you probably know it from the Brady Snellis novel. Mm. Um, Like um, he's referenced all the time and yet doesn't have Particularly from the, I mean, like I said, particularly from that period from like 81 to 86, like doesn't have a lot of radio play at all. Oh, definitely not. No, really not until, <laughs> I don't even know. After that. Or, I think yeah, Kojak yeah. variety or uh, all this useless beauty. You know, brutal, really brutal Who youth, maybe? brutal youth. I know he did like the Letterman circuit with that, with that album. And so he, he probably got some play on, and that was during the, yeah, yeah. Spike. Definitely. That's where I first discovered him because Veronica was actually like a VH1 hit. Right. Um, but like his best yeah. albums are between, or like, are uh, armed forces, Imperial bedroom, blood and chocolate and King of America. And that's a time period where nobody was, what, I mean, but he was getting great reviews in Rolling Stone, but yeah, like nobody heard those records in the United States. No, I know. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a strange phenomenon. I will say, um, I, I, I think I mentioned this off air. I followed him up until probably um, the Delivery Man in two thousand and four. I began grad school in two thousand and five, and basically I lost track of everything after that point until somewhat recently and so like uh i i followed i thought everything now north i would like to go back and re-listen to north like piano ballads um th- that one kind of left me a little bit cold but i actually thought when i was cruel in 2002 and uh and the delivery man are just both fantastic albums like right up there with anything he did um uh, early on and i actually um i went and saw him in concert right before the pandemic started he played a, a show in hershey pennsylvania uh, and a friend of mine and i went to see him and i had seen him before on the brutal youth tour in 1994 and i have to he still say tours like crazy he's still touring now oh i I know and he was fantastic uh two years like 2019 i think it was he was utterly fantastic honestly his voice is better than it was when he was a young man he did a lot of training um and he gets down and, and he can play the piano as well as steve naive does and he it was an incredible show i was actually blown away by how good the show right. was so i don't want to like dismiss his later work completely he's still no, no, very no, no, no. vital I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't disagree with you. In fact, for me, the when his voice starts sounding, it's not associated with him, but when his voice starts sounding like really good is around um, King of America, and Definitely. I think it's literally just age. Definitely, like, yeah. 
age in, in a lot of time singing. Like I, I still think that is his best vocals on any of his albums. Um, yeah, that's like the, the perfect pitch. And, and uh, there was a moment like after that, during sort of like uh, Other Side of Summer. What was that album? Uh, Mighty Like a Rose. I feel oh. like he would try to oversing things a bit um, and, and try to hit notes he couldn't really hit. Um, and then he kind of, I think the classical album helped him actually start to hit those notes. <laughs> but uh, but I, I still think King of America is his best vocal. I, I One of the things I think about Elvis Costello is that he's an incredible singer in a very narrow range. He's yeah. like a one and a half, two octave singer. Yeah. Um, sometimes he tries to be a four octave singer and it does not work. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but when he's singing in his range, he's like pitch perfect. Yeah. And that's, um, there's a bunch of, I mean, you know, I guess Leonard Cohen's like that when Leonard Cohen's in his range, he's amazing. If he tries to go out of it, you're like, ah, yeah. Um, uh, but that that is, I mean, you made the, the comparison to like the David Foster Wallace type, right? I mean, that is something you have to own. Um, there is sort of like that that gallery of, of boy singers, right. Of, of male, like singer songwriters that I, there probably are people who like for the cultural capital that saying you like brings them. Uh, and I, I know I, I sincerely don't think that's my, the case with me and, and, um, and, and well, Elvis Costello. You know, I really like David Foster Wallace, except for infinite jest. So yeah, I, yeah. Mean, I'll go out on the, no, yeah, that's what I'm saying. A bad person, but. but, but there are definitely people I have tried to like, because smart people are supposed to like, <laughs> and I just couldn't get into it. For Maybe, me, that's Lou Reed. And, and, and it could be a weakness of mine. I'm, I'm willing to admit that it's just I'm not ready for that yet, right? Uh, and it's as I mature or something, maybe I'll see what it what it is. But but yeah, there 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 are people I've tried to like just to say that I like. But Elvis Costello, I can honestly say, really hit home with me in a powerful way. Like, like how many people like the Misfits because of the shirt and have never actually really listened to the Misfits? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, Costello. So for my, for me, my teenage, like my teenage bands in this, in this adjacent field are like Bowie. Um, uh, I was really into Iggy Pop. Um, I, tried to make myself Lou, uh, like Lou Reed because you were supposed to after the Train Body soundtrack came out. Um, <laughs> and I do like parts of the Velvet Underground. I just discovered that I, I like John Cale. I don't really give a crap about anything Lou Reed ever did, yeah. um, except for Transformer, which is okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I, I do think Costello has that, and that hurts him. Yeah. Just like it hurts David Foster Wallace. A lot of people do not appreciate him enough because it is a it is a literary hipster's affectation yeah. to cool. like um, Elvis Costello. That's a great um, way to put it, yeah. Um, and um, there have been, uh, you know, uh, I think of the Decemberist 15 years ago as a band like this. It's, it, it, that, that reputation eventually hurt their career. Um, uh, I mean, they made plenty of albums, but I don't think anyone listened to them. And you know that that what's interesting is now if you're not a very established artist having the reputation of being the artist that people like for cultural capital reasons can actually destroy your career yeah 
And I think it's interesting because I think that almost did happen to Elvis Costello, compounded by his bad behavior. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I, you know, I, I would tell people go listen to any of those '80s albums in particular. I think Imperial Bedroom, Punch O'Clock, King America, Blood and Chocolate, even Spike—they're all—they're all solid albums. Um, go back and listen to this year's model. I think my aim is true. It unfortunately is the one more pe- more people listen to, and I think that's kind of unfortunate because it's the least Elvis Costello-y of his entire. It, it really culture. doesn't predict anything else that's going to come after it in so many ways, other than the angry young man like persona for a few years. The lyrics, yeah, are are predictive, but like the music is slower. Yeah, uh, apparently. When they got back together for when he got inducted to the Rock and Roll Harbor and play him, and Clover actually backed him and played him, he thought they were off pace because when the attraction played all those songs, they sped them up. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like he had, he he had changed the time signature in his head and trying to go back to the way they were recorded actually messed them up. Yeah, that actually you know reminded me like I, have you ever heard any of his live albums? Like I, I got the two and a half years box set when it came out in ninety three mm-hmm. or whatever, and uh, and it came with the live album of El, El Macambo, and um and, and so it's like someplace in Canada. It was t- the whole show is like thirty minutes long. That's another thing that hurt him is that he was like. A kind of merciless performer. He he would blow through a concert and people feel like they got ripped off because he did all the songs in like thirty minutes and he would leave. <laughs> and so he, I think he kind of like uh, as a way of like uh, I don't know, like I don't know, bringing that. I don't know. He was trying to own that bad boy persona or something, and um, like he was too good for his audience or something like that. But now, he definitely did that. I yeah. mean, and he doesn't do that now. One of the things no, we're not watching. Now. What if you watch any of the current Elvis Costello? Like he does a show. Oh, it, but I, I was, I was literally when he did um, uh, "Peace, Love, and Understanding." What's so funny about "Peace, Love, and Understanding" in 2019 when I saw him? I was literally crying, and this was before COVID, <laughs> and so I was literally like weeping uh, at that. And, and it was one of the encore songs, of course, right? But he, it was like uh, he puts on an incredible show now, right? and even in '94, it was unbelievable. He, it was a really, really great show. I imagine in the 80s, the problem is he probably did put on an incredible show, but it, you think you're going to see a normal rock show, and what you're really seeing is a dude playing awesome songs, but at the speed of the Minutemen. Yeah. <laughs> and nice. so, like, he can go through 13 songs in a half an hour. Yes. Um, <laughs> exactly. I think it's another thing. I, go back and listen to those other, other records. The other thing I like about early Costello records, which was such against the ethos of rock music at the time and very much is very punky is he if if the song is short it's short yeah like he doesn't he doesn't make a song be five minutes long no action is less than two minutes long right Uh, it's an incredibly short song right yeah and in fact all the songs on this year's model were very short and like but he allows himself to grow that's another thing i think that's really admirable about him as an artist he really has this kind of restless um, style in a lot of ways, like Bob Dylan before him, um, just constantly evolving into different styles. And really, when you look, 1977, his first uh, album comes out. 1982 is only five years later, and Imperial Bedroom is like 
light years ahead in yeah. terms of production value and artistic vision in only five years. It's an incredible. And he like, was touring the entire time too. I think yeah. like I mean, one thing that you read from everyone who knew him, despite the fact that they also talk about him being a jerk, um, is that he was a, a workhorse. They would talk about how he was sober when he would record and he would go in in the morning, write, record every day. Um, and that is not part of a lot of our ethos of, I don't know, um, of rock stars in the 70s. I mean, you think about like, he's not someone like uh, Bowie, Eno, and and uh, Iggy Pop who have to like sober up right. <laughs> in um, uh, with Lou Reed in a hotel in Berlin and then Lou Reed like can't stay sober and like gets in a fight with Bowie. Yeah. Um, there's there's like, a craftsmanship. Kind of pop star. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a craftsmanship. And then probably that's an influence of his father, I'm sure, who was sort of a, a road musician for a big band. Right. I mean, yeah, he was a big band musician in the BB in, uh, for the BBC. He also recorded like, very precise covers of American music. That was like a thing they did in this, in the fifties and sixties in the UK. Um, and, uh, Costello says his father was a major influence on his work. Yeah. Um, uh, but he, he said he, in his autobiography, he said he didn't realize that too. It was like in his forties. Yeah. Um, how much that had affected his like workmanship. He's a workman's musician. Yeah. And I imagine a lot of it has to do with just the, the kind of music that was a played around the house was not st strictly, you know, beach boys and, uh, <laughs> and, and buddy Holly. Right. It was, it was, they had this jazz, which probably explains the very complicated chord progressions and, and, and that sort of right. thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I, I just have to say, I mean, when you, I mean, you're right. You wanted to mostly focus on that period up until like blood, like 1986, he pulls out two albums, diametrically different albums. Blood and chocolate is a, uh, a hard driving rock album. And King of America is a very soft, like almost folk album. And, yeah. um, but, and I, I like hold those up as like some of my, two of my favorites, if not my favorites of his career. But um, and maybe because they sound more like music today sounds, Imperial Bedroom, as great as it is, doesn't sound like anything you'd hear today. Whereas those two albums have a little bit more of a timelessness in the production, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Imperial Bedroom is, because it's so Baroque and Baroque pop, in so much that the America ever got Baroque pop. We got it in bits and pieces through people like Van Morrison or maybe in the 80s with Soft Machine. So you get it in the late 60s and in the 80s in America. You And you get it some in the 70s. But anything we hear like that invokes that to us. I don't know that it does in Britain. I, I can't really speak to that. But when I go and look at, like, like I mentioned Robert Wyatt, you look at his career, um, he's got albums coming out like that throughout yeah. uh you look at john kale john kale's album's coming out like that all the way up into like the 2000s right. um and in america i feel like that feels dated whereas um there's there's so much of 90s rock presaged in those mid 80s albums yes <laughs> um that uh the return, I mean, alter, one of the things that grunge does, even though I 
I don't. We can have a discussion if anyone knows what grunge actually is. But um, is after the post punk fades out, you have a return of power pop to pop radio. Yeah. Um, like Marshall which, Crenshaw. Know, yeah. Yeah, which which is not something that you had. Basically, hair metal and heavy metal drowned that out in the eighties. Yeah. Um, and that. So you're talking about more like Matthew Sweet and, and and people like that. Like it's hard for me to imagine Matthew Sweet without Elvis Costello. Honestly, yeah. No, exactly. You, you got all these people. Um, Matthew Sweet. Uh, I'm trying to think of who, like almost any singer songwriter from the mid '90s, is presaged by by '80s. Uh, except that, as much as I love Matthew Sweet, and I and I do love Matthew Sweet. It's nowhere near as complicated, and it's nowhere near as, liter- as lyrically interesting. True. Um, um, yeah. you know, I'm trying to think of somebody who is. I don't think you really get a whole lot of people who are as lyrically ambitious as Elvis Costello till like the aughts. Maybe, maybe someone like uh, Elliot Smith is like might be actually, even though he doesn't seem like he's that related to Elvis Costello, like that similar mm-hmm. kind of complicated bad boy um multiple layers lyrics that's you get that at the end of the at the end of the 90s too i guess but yeah. um hmm. it's it's interesting how i mean I, he he suffers from the fact that for pop radio he had the reputation of being too smart and that's kind of weird because it's not like there wasn't smart pop rock in the 80s like there was yeah. but and British um, pop rock, like Crowded House, and you know what I mean. They're, they're, it's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It well, is. A... <laughs> that's more explicitly new wave, though. I think yeah. that's the problem that you have. At, like Blood and Chocolate and King of America, they're not new wave. They're not. They they don't sound like American rock of the time. No, nothing like. Um, you're right. They don't sound like American pop of the time. I guess you can like you end up comparing them to people like Springsteen. Yeah. And that, but it doesn't really work. He doesn't have the same, like, King of America, even though it's roughly contemporaneous with Born in the USA. It's actually interesting. Listen to those two albums hmm. back to back, uh, Born in the USA and King of America, because they're only like a year and a half apart. Yeah. Um, That's crazy. I never it, thought of that. And it, Born in the USA sounds so unbelievably 1985. Yeah. Um, and King of America could have been released in the mid '90s easily. Oh, easily. I mean, I think it could be released today as now. an Amer- as an Americana <laughs> album for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it. Its production values are modern. Like that that album does not re- make me think of 1986 at all. No, um, you're right. And and he has a totally different look. He he kind of uh, foregoes the uh, the horn he rims. He grew a beard, and he has the kind of little John Lennon wire glasses for that album. Um, yeah, he, he actually kind of changed. He, he actually stops. That album is, um, it's the, 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 the name is The Costello Show featuring Elvis Costello. Um, right. but, but, his, but he legally goes by Declan McManus again, which is his given name. Um, and so, yeah, there's a whole lot of identity uh grasping well, I mean, <laughs> going on does, does people know how many names he's had because I, I should like he has been known as dp costello before before he before his albums when he was still a bar recorder 
in the early 70s in, in the UK. Um, he was known as the imposter. Yeah. He was known as Napoleon Dynamite for people who know the movie. That's where it comes from. Yes. Um, Howard Coward was one of his names. The like, Coward Brothers. <laughs> with uh, <laughs> Was that T-Bone Burnett that he was in that band with? Or, yes. or someone like that. Yeah, yeah. The Coward Brothers. Uh, it wasn't and a And then yeah. Mac Manis was also one. I mean, like, he, he, yeah. he has actually, interestingly, maybe because of his Irish heritage. I mean, Costello is an interesting name, actually, to pick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because Costello is a is a Spanish name associated with Ireland. Mm, interesting. Um, uh, I read that it so, was a stage name his father used in some of it his... It is. Yeah, okay, yeah. So it's an homage to his dad. It Actually, it is a name that is associated with his dad's mother's family. Okay. Um, but it is also... To us, it does not signify an Irish name, but to... Brits, it would. Okay, interesting. Um, and then Elvis is the American part. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is actually an interesting. I mean, we didn't touch on that. I mean, his first album comes out the same year that Elvis Presley dies. Uh, right. And, and um, there is, I don't know, was it out before Elvis Presley? Was he already doing I can't remember when Presley died. I think he already picked the name before he died, but it's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it didn't look good, right? <laughs> <laughs> it looked a little snotty, right? You know, um, and uh, yeah, that's and and in fact, the great album cover of My Aim Is True has this sort of checkerboard pattern. He's like standing holding a guitar in the middle. There's a checkerboard pattern on the side, and inside the checks it says Elvis is King, Elvis is King, like over and over and over. Uh, it's a really brilliant album album cover that is meant. I think it was a Jake Riviera. Um, kind of marketing ploy um, to get him to use that name. And uh, I don't know that he ever liked it. And thus all the permutations of, uh, <laughs> of names and, 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 and persona that we've seen so far, but he's never been able to shed it. Unlike like, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is he still has Costello. Think about somebody else who had problems with their name, like John Cougar Mellencamp, who's yeah. been like 85 games. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. John Cougar, John Mellencamp, a bunch of other things, but Johnny Cougar, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's it's interesting. I it's interesting to me also, like the need to both signify and downplay his Irishness. Yeah, but he's he was not born in Ireland. I mean, that's another thing. Like his family is Irish, but he was born in the UK, in the UK proper. I think. Yeah. Um, like I think he was born in North, in Northern England, but, um. But the Irish stuff actually in his in his in his first four albums comes up all the time in his lyrics. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm wondering if maybe this is something I'm picking up just kind of organically that, you know, I'm not from West Virginia, though my family is. And so there's something about those roots broken as they are that still kind of pull to me and i'm wondering if i'm pulling some of that jd vance man me and dwight yoakum i'll take dwight yoakum all right um, <laughs> okay um, but well, uh, i was born in georgia and raised in georgia and so like i very much identify as a georgian even though i have not lived in georgia now for 14 years yeah so yeah but i'm wondering if something subconscious in me sort of detects that kind of like disconnect that kind of longing for a, a homeland that was never experienced or something and well, uh, yeah know. it's interesting you, you talk about a snotty attitude because in the uk he tends to insult england but in the u.s 
he was often angering Americans by praising the English. Yeah. Which is, you know, he, he had a complex. There's no doubt about it. Like, <laughs> he would be somebody great. was put on, but he seemed to have actually bought into his own BS over time. And this is before Twitter, people. Um, this is, uh, yeah. yeah, imagine what he would have done if Twitter had been out. He would have been so canceled. I mean, he would have been canceled. <laughs> You would have been so canceled. <laughs> so, I mean, he actually kind of was. I mean, like, true. He was actually canceled effectively. <laughs> like literally, um, yeah. <laughs> um, um, you know, he he spent years doing rock against racism to make up for that stuff that happened in '79. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it is interesting. I wonder when we talk about his redemption tour. Just look in the '90s. How many people he works with? Yeah. Like. Some of that may have been opportunistic, but it does also seem like he's trying to like he did the bring thing with, people up with him with New Orleans. He did that uh, that post Katrina album, um, yeah. the River in Reverse with Al uh, Allen Toussaint, I think it was. Um, yeah, yeah. There was def- there's definitely yeah. I I am totally not of the mind that someone should be forever defined by what something they did as a famous drunk 22 year old person yeah you know what i mean like i like and so i i'm very happy that he's had really a, a almost singular career i you're it's very difficult to find another person who's had a career like elvis costello yeah you i can't think i mean the other people i think of are all also kind of in the same camp of people um uh i think of Lou Reed is another person who is equally hard to define, uh, although have more radio hits probably for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. He'll actually get classic. Although I'm rock not sure him. ever how walk on the wild side got put, played on the radio. Without I don't either. Every time I hear that, <laughs> I'm like, it makes me, gives me the willies today. I can't imagine what it was like back then. Right. I'm like, I'm like, I guess they just didn't know what he was singing about. Um, <laughs> Like he didn't even get censored in the UK, which is crazy. Um, I'm like he's talking about like transgender prostitutes and part of that song. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. It very, yeah, it's uh, very interesting. But no, um, um, but yeah, it's it, it like, but I have to think Lou Reed, Bowie. They're the people who have similar careers because also we need to mention that like like. Like Bowie, not only was Bruce, he was also an actor. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, and yeah. Not a bad one yeah. either. Um, yeah. I, but the difference yeah, I mean, with him is that, I mean, he did it all without really popular radio play. Like a, a, a person on the street may never have heard of him. Um, and yet, uh, like, he was sort of still like this influential person who's had now a 45 year career. And it really showing no signs of slowing up creatively or like in terms of touring or anything like that. I mean, he is ancient. Yeah. He's not that ancient. What, what, well, he's 63. He's yeah, 60, yeah. I mean, 68, 68. He's yeah. not that old, but he's old. Well, gosh, that's older. Than, I mean, honestly, he looks really good. I mean, he looked really good, I got to say. Um, he looks a lot better than, say, Van, uh, Van Morrison, who's also from the same age. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, um, I got to say, he actually looked better in 2019 than he did in 1994. He was actually quite heavy and uh, and just didn't look very healthy in, in 1994. Still put on a great show, but he actually looked, I mean, he has a cool look now with the 
the you know the hat and, <laughs> and everything the kind of jazz master hat or whatever he was wearing. Yeah, he's got like a jazz he's got like a jazzy <laughs> straw hat and like he's wearing like uh he's also wearing distinctive glasses but neither neither set that we know him for right. i think they're more like uh they he looks like he's wearing Ray charles glasses yeah oh, interesting yeah yeah interesting no, yeah, I'm really. This has been a fun show uh, to talk about. Anything else that you want to hit on that we we didn't cover? No, I mean, I mean we talked all, all. Go back, just guys, go back. Listen to King of America. Yeah. Go and listen to King of America, because I think if you're not listening to his first two albums, I think that's one of the more approachable ones. Yeah. I would not start with Imperial Bedroom or Armed Forces. Like. No, they're very, I mean, one thing about those albums is that they're very experimental in the production. They're, they're layered and there's very, they're very complicated musically. Um, and yes, but King of America, especially for an American listener, will be very kind of like um, an easy entryway into, uh, into his work. And uh, it'll feel, I think, I, I, I think like we said, it will feel timeless. It won't feel dated. Yeah. Um, I mean, his seventies work doesn't feel dated because it's retro for the time. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I would also throw get happy out there. Um, I love get happy. It's, it sounds very muddled, like muddied. Um, the problem with that one is it was back in the LP only days and they were trying some new technology to fit 20 tracks on one disc and, and it, and it sounds very compressed. Um, and, and just sort of almost like not quite muffled, but it, there's not a richness to the sound. But the songs are very kind of like Stoltz and Vax, uh, Vox and Stoltz, um, Vax, <laughs> Vox and Stoltz, uh, uh, soul, like rhythm and blues kind of um, right. style music. And, and they're very kind of jumpy and, um, and, and, fun and um the the production is a little muddied but uh just just the nature of that that recording process but uh it should have been a double album but they tried to squeeze them all on one disc basically and uh yep. and, but they're all excellent excellent songs and honestly um i wouldn't stop i would you know i loved when i was cruel i think that that's a fantastic album the delivery man is sort of like a concept album with it tells like an extended story that is also really interesting and, and really great music and if you're a fan of americana that's a very americana album and so brutal youth is quite good um uh, what which one brutal youth brutal youth i loved yeah that was the one that came out during the heyday of alternative music and so he i think got a little bit of radio play for some of that and certainly he got some like late night talk show appearances i remember him on letterman doing um 13 steps lead down off of that album and so yeah um well derek this is like honestly i gotta say this is the first show i think i've ever recorded with you where i felt like i could keep up with you (laughs) (laughs) We've probably been on yeah, the show we were, 20 we're, times. We're equally versed in Elvis <laughs> Costello. You've probably been um, on the show 20 times, and I feel like I finally, I could finally keep speed with you a little how bit. How do you feel about Warren Zevon, though? Um, <laughs> that's, that's one I am, like, if I were to jump into him, I know just the surface. It would be like, I know that there's like a rich um, body of work there for me to discover, and I still haven't discovered it. I actually, when you when we were thinking about people who have just as influential careers that, that's, as the person yeah. that occurred to me in America that like, who also... Very, very good. Got radio play in the 70s, but has 30 years more of music yeah. that people just 
don't really know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I actually went to a Letterman show in the 90s uh, for a taping of it. And Paul Schaefer was actually on vacation or whatever. And Lord, Warren Zevon was the musical like host of it. And so I actually got to see him sort of live. It was He was really great. And um, yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I think Warren Zevon is probably... The closest American version of, of that, of, of really maybe any ver uh, any kind of singer that is so like closely uh, maps onto um, Costello's career. Yeah, Poppy, weird. Randy weird, Newman, so maybe Randy Newman. Um. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> honestly, Randy Newman's an interesting one because um, musically he's never been that innovative, but lyrically. He was really pushing the envelope in the in the seventies and early eighties, and then somehow it's I now only remember him for Disney. But Toy like, Story. Michael Farmer loves Randy Newman. <laughs> if he's still listening to this episode, um, yeah, you should Farmer. You should reach out to Varn to, to talking. Randy Good Newman. old boys, which is a weird <laughs> album yeah. that is. I mean, it's partially about Lester Maddox, it's partially about New Orleans, and I forget that Randy Newman is technically Southern, because um, he doesn't seem like it except on that album. Yeah. And then there's like a whole interlude in the middle about uh, about um, about the Kingfisher, <laughs> like, yeah. and, and Huey Long. It's so weird. He's like, a wildly imaginative person. That is so true. <laughs> Oh my God. Well, Varn, this is so much fun. Thank you so much, Derek. Um, like once again, Good. if you're listening to the show, thank you. Um, go visit Varn's stuff. I'll put some links. Uh, Very to... different than what we talk about the show. That's true. Yeah. And this is why the world's missing out on something by not listening to you talk about art, right? And so uh, it's a little gap I feel like I can fill by having you come on to talk about uh, the, the beautiful things that people make. And so for C. Derek Varn, my name is Danny Anderson, thanking you for listening to another episode of The Sectarian review podcast. Yeah,